Episode number 183 of Blast Points is Jason. And it's Gabe. It's Jabba Palooza. <laughs> it's summertime. Time to get outside and listen to some rock and roll and some Jabba and roll. <laughs> Put on your flannel shirt, get in the mosh pit. <laughs> do mosh pits even still happen anymore? Uh, I think they do sometimes, yeah. It depends on what show you go to. Yeah. At Jabba Palooza, there's still mosh pits. That's you know, that's really true. There's there's like weekways and baratas and nicktoes. <laughs> but they call they call them sarlacc pits <laughs> on on tattooing it at Jabba Palooza. You know, when the Max Rebo band isn't playing at Jabba's Palace, it's like fishbone or something. <laughs> well, they set up outside. They put the stage on one of the hover hover uh, yachts. They park that across from the stadium at the Bunta. <laughs> There's food trucks. It's the Java Music Festival. So now, now you just have me thinking about. I really want to see Star Wars food trucks. Well, it's like that that John Favreau show on Netflix. It's all about food trucks. You know, there should be some food trucks on the Mandalorian. Man, maybe there will be. Maybe we'll finally get what we've all been dreaming about: more Star Wars food and a Star Wars food truck. Maybe at Celebration Anaheim, they'll have Star Wars-themed food trucks. Just bring some of the food over from Galaxy's Edge and put it on like a Galaxy's Edge food truck. It would be huge. Yeah, that's a missed opportunity to not have some Star Wars-looking food truck that sells the Galaxy's Edge food. Just to like, oh, you're this close to Disney, but you haven't come in yet? Check this out. <laughs> they can have a trailer attached to the back where you can jump on and they'll give you rides back to Galaxy's Edge. <laughs> Just a cannon they shoot you out of. I regret nothing. You fly in. It could have gone very bad. (laughs) But it didn't. Star Tours on steroids. Galaxy. All right. So Jabba Palooza. We're talking about Jabba this week. So it's an episode we've been planning to do for a very long time. Everything Jabba. All about Jabba. He's one of the superstars of the Star Wars universe. He, well, he was either in or his uh, presence was felt in almost all six of the original movies. And Jabba is a really interesting Star Wars character where everything you read about, like the the conception, like the 
design. Everything was just like, oh, he's he's bad. He's evil. He's got to be disgusting. He's got to be horrible. But everyone loves Jabba. Like if if you actually think about Jabba in like Return of the Jedi, he's a really horrible thing, person, whatever, slug. To to work for Jabba would be awful. He doesn't treat people like Bib Fortuna is probably like his closest he has to a best friend, and he really treats Bib Fortuna terribly. Like I kind of feel bad for Bib Fortuna thinking about it. Yeah, Jabba's not a not a nice guy. He's a vile gangster. He's lazy and mean but he's also yeah for some reason he's like really lovable and jabba also he's like in a rare level of star wars characters where his name has almost become an adjective you know like yoda like there aren't many star wars characters who have graduated to that level of pop culture famous in universe two, other than the legend of Luke Skywalker, the only other character that they sing songs about is Jabba. Thirty years later, people are singing the Ballad of Jabba the Hutt at Maz's castle. And if you just really slow down and think about Jabba, for as disgusting as a thing he is, he's so beloved. He still talked about this. Like there was the rumor a while back that there was going to be like a Jabba the Hutt spinoff movie, and it's. No one ever was like, well, that's too outrageous to do. Everyone's like, oh, yeah, maybe. Seems seems plausible to me, yeah. And if you just think about what Jabba is on every level in real life as a colossal puppet, which we're going to get into, or just the fact that he's just a giant, disgusting slug thing that sits on like a pedestal and is like a gangster, it's insane. <laughs> he eats live frogs. <laughs> just hangs out all day. He sleeps sitting there. He's got a bunch of weirdos hanging out in his house all day long. He just smokes all day. <laughs> yeah, he's nothing but trouble. But we—he's just like it's like your weird cousin. You just you want him to do better, but you still love him. <laughs> you, you overlook that he feeds people to a giant rancor underneath him. And but Gabe, you—you've always especially had a soft spot for Jabba. Your whole family has a soft spot for Jabba, right? Yeah. For some reason, my daughter, when she was. Oh, man, three or four years old, she decided of all the things to fall in love with that she loved Jabba and played with all the Jabba toys that I had and had a family of Jabba's. And we had the I have the big like 12 inch scale sideshow giant Jabba that she would sleep with and put a blanket on and use the other Jabba's as its children. So, yeah, we had a there was a few. Those are the good years. There are a few, <laughs> a few years of nothing but Jabba love in our house. Unfortunately, she's kind of grown out of that, so I, I have to put Jabba to bed now and sleep with him. In 1983, when you saw Return of the Jedi, can you remember your impressions of Jabba? Like, what what did Jabba mean to you then? Yeah, I vividly remember going into the movie. I feel like I didn't know anything that was going to happen in the movie, but I was excited to see Jabba because I knew about Jabba, I think, from the Burger King Cups. I don't remember if I saw some other thing with Jabba, but I remember being excited for Jabba and thinking about that there was this thing, Jabba the Hutt, in the movie that I was going to see. <laughs> I wasn't disappointed. It's almost like they did Yoda incredibly well. And then they were like, how can we outdo Yoda? It's, it's almost like they did the exact opposite, where Yoda was this incredibly detailed, lifelike puppet, but he was small and he was wise let's make an even more ridiculous insane puppet basically but let's make it huge and awful <laughs> yeah the uh, yeah the opposite of yoda the anti yoda what did you think of jabba when return of the jedi came out i just thought he was cool i thought he was awesome i was like this is this is great this is like the craziest thing i've ever seen this is like the biggest craziest alien ever i love him and i had the kenner toy of him and i was like this is great Look at this thing. Well, it kind of, I guess, thinking about it, it is like the the ultimate prototype, like boy toy of it's gross, it's ugly, and it like has boogers and and farts and stuff. It's just like there's so been so many toys since then that are really just different versions of Jabba the Hutt. It's a big worm that sits there and burps, covered in slime. Yeah, yeah and we had heard about him in. The original Star Wars, we had heard about him in Empire Strikes Back, and it's like, oh, man, not only are we going back to Tatooine, but we're going to see this Jabba. 
and they knew they had to deliver. They had to make the biggest, craziest thing anyone had ever seen. It's Jabba. And they did it. I don't feel, I don't, I mean, granted I was a small child, but I don't ever feel like even as a grown up, that Jabba doesn't feel like a completely real creature. Well, and Jabba was everywhere on the marketing for Return of the Jedi. Every t-shirt, every like back to school folder, every lunchbox, everything was like Jabba. They hadn't even really gotten it. I mean, Ewoks were a secret when the movie first came out. You like, you couldn't know what the Ewoks looked like, and the whole Ewok thing hadn't even started yet. But Jabba, he was out there, and he was like, go see Return of the Jedi, go see this Jabba thing. But Jabba wasn't always the impressive fourth wonder of the world puppet that we know it to be today. But Jabba weirdly always was going to be part of Star Wars. In fact... In 1975, when Lucas was just writing, scribbling down story ideas, there is a quote in there just on his yellow legal pad, Jabba in a prison cell. (laughs) I don't know where Lucas was going with that. That was probably his whole, like, he gets up and he goes and sits at his desk and he he makes sure he sits there from nine to five (laughs) when he's writing. That whole day, that was probably the whole day he wrote Jabba. In a prison cell, and he just thought about that for eight hours, and then, up, oh, it's five o'clock, going home. <laughs> that was a productive day. <laughs> All done today. In the second draft, Luke is selling his speeder, and Han is trying to enroll his cyborg friend, Montrose Holdock, into, um, they're at the docking bay. And he's trying to get uh, Montrose to join him in this uh, this mission they're going on. And there's a pirate named Jabba the Hutt, who was playing dice with Chewbacca. Han's boss is this guy, Captain Oxus, and they need to steal a pirate ship. And this whole dot guy is the science officer on the Millennium Falcon, and it's all crazy. Then in the third draft, in the same part, they go to leave in the Falcon, and there's a bunch of pirates led by, and the quote is, a gross slavering hulk named Jabba the Hutt. Who wants Han Solo to reroute his shipment for him? Han creates like a distraction, sneaks out, leaving Jabba and the pirates behind. Now, in the fourth draft, they're leaving. Han is confronted by Montrose, an Imperial bureaucrat. Vader has ordered to have the ship not leave Mos Eisley. Solo again creates a distraction. Everyone sneaks on and they're ready to go. So the fourth draft, Jabba is not in it. Now, the revised fourth draft, Jabba shows back up with a half a dozen pirates and some, quote, purple aliens. <laughs> and the quote now on Jabba is he is the grossest of slavering hulks. His scarred face is a grim testimonial to his prowess as a vicious killer. And then the scene pretty much goes as it is as we see it in, in A New Hope. But all of these scenes with Jabba kind of showing up or this Imperial person or Montrose or whatever. It's all kind of the point of all these scenes is kind of to establish Han's character because the Greedo scene in a lot of these drafts is very, very brief. And this was originally supposed to be the scene that kind of shows Han as being like this, like, charming kind of smuggler who creates a distraction and takes off and steals a pirate ship and all this stuff. So cut to Monday, April 12th, 1976. It's a day long remembered as Declan Mulhold is on stage as Jabba the Hutt, or as he's better known, human Jabba. Right here, Jabba. I've been waiting for you. Have you not? You didn't think I was going to run, did you? Ah, my boy. There are times you disappoint me. Why haven't you paid me? And why did you have to fry poor Greedo like that? After all, we've been through together. Look, Jabba, next time you want to talk to me, come see me yourself. Don't send one of these twerps. Han. Han. Understand. I just can't afford to make exceptions. Later that week, the cantina scene is filmed, the first cantina scene. And we kind of got into this and we had Tom Spina on a few weeks back and we were talking about the humans of the cantina where the popular theory is that Lucas says, I was always intended it for it to be a stop motion. It was never going to be the, the guy in the furry coat. 
But then everything you read and you talk, like special effects people talking about it, the way it's shot, and with especially with Harrison Ford walking behind human Jabba, it's almost like there was no way they could have done a stop motion thing over human Jabba at that time. In the film Star Wars, uh, there was a scene with Jabba himself. He was always intended to be this loathsome, large, monstrous creature. But it wasn't possible to incorporate my design of Jabba when we shot the scene with the actors on the set. Uh, so I came up with the idea of shooting the scene with a man, and eventually I would mat in a stop-motion creature over the man. But isn't there still some mystery to that, though? Because isn't it still like there was camera problems that day and wasn't... I thought I read somewhere that that whole scene was potentially shot second unit, so Lucas might not even have been around. It might have been... because. Gary Kurtz was around. So I almost feel like it could have been a situation where the people filming didn't think about that. It could have been replaced and didn't make sure that they filmed it in a way that would be easy to be replaced. It could be a combination of, of things of why that whole scene didn't work for whatever reason. So maybe deep down inside in Lucas's mind, he thought it could be a stop motion puppet. He just forgot to tell anyone because he was busy <laughs> with all the rest of the movie. <laughs> but definitely at some point they realized that scene was not working because then they went in and rewrote the Greedo scene to kind of basically replace all the dialogue from that scene. Basically, in late 1976, when Paul Hirsch and Richard Chu and Marsha all kind of sat down and viewed the Lost Cut, which we talked about in an episode back, and they started talking about getting aggressive with making major changes to Star Wars and straightening it out and trying to come up with some sort of narrative to the story, which was kind of at that time kind of all over the place. They all agreed, like, you, had, you take the Luke and Big stuff out, and one of the big things was take the Jabba scene out, which supposedly, according to Rinsler's making of Star Wars book, Harrison Ford and Marsha fought to keep it in, and they played with a lot of different things. They thought about um, overdubbing, human Jabba's voice with an alien language and putting subtitles on it. But then they came up with the idea if they took that scene out and they gave all that bit of exposition to the Greedo scene, that it could work a little bit better. And then it moves the story along faster where they get off Tatooine quicker and they get out of there once they make the deal to leave, which all just it like thinking about it now, it kind of makes sense. Yeah. Well, it's definitely one of those scenes that the movie's probably better without it, but because we love Jabba so much, <laughs> we're so happy to have him back that we let it slide. In 1997, and we'll, we'll get into it more in detail later, but when that scene came on, we were just like, oh, yeah, here we go. Yeah. <laughs> but really, is it really needed? Really? After you've had the Greedo scene? No, but not everything wonderful is needed. <laughs> you don't need to have ice cream after dinner, but that doesn't mean it isn't awesome when you do. Good point. And if anything in Star Wars is, is ice cream, it's Jabba, because he looks like a big green glob of soft serve. Yeah, so then the comic comes out, the Marvel comic adaptation, and there's Jabba, and he's like this funky-looking fishman creature alien thing. So somewhere along the line, there was the plan to put Jabba in there as an alien. Who knows? So we all know then Jabba gets mentioned again in Empire Strikes Back. And then we move into Return of the Jedi, where there was no way getting around it at this point. Jabba had to be in the movie. And a lot of work was done on Jabba the Hutt's appearance. When we came to uh, Jedi, I was able to redesign the monster start from scratch uh, in the first film it, the, the fact that he was walking and certain things you know demanded a certain type of creature uh, this way I was able to have more freedom in creating the creature and uh, make him an even more interesting character than he would had originally been designed in the first film Lucas's direction was kind of he got Nilo he got Phil Tippett and he got Macquarie and he was just kind of like you guys all See what you come up with. And pretty much his only direction was Sydney Green Street. Think of Green Street. When all else fails, get back to Green Street. And it's amazing. Like, if you go back to the art of Return of the Jedi book, 
I went back and looked at it and I was looking at just the pages and pages and pages of Java concepts in that. And it just reminded me that I do not go back and look at the art of the original trilogy books enough. I spend so much time looking at like the art of force awakens and the art of last Jedi and stuff because they're current. And sometimes stuff in those is things they're playing with for rise of Skywalker or who knows what else, but uh, like going back to the original trilogy art books, there's so like, I feel like every page I was like, I feel like I'm looking at this for the first time. There's so much concept art for star Wars that it's kind of nice. If you take a break, and, and and stick with one era for a, a few years, you can go back to another era. And yeah, it's like seeing it all again for the first time. There's no way to keep it all in your brain at one time. So it was Phil Tippett's design that won out. He pretty much went the direction of doing just a giant gross slug, <laughs> where a lot of the other designs for Jabba were very human looking. There's like that great one with like a, a big long mustache and a goatee. <laughs> And in March, April 1981, it was decided that Stuart Freeborn's shop in the UK would be handling the construction of Jabba, which makes sense. I mean, they did Yoda, and the original order to have Jabba done was January 1982. And it was definitely the biggest, most ambitious puppet ever created. It was everything, like we were saying, they learned from Yoda, taken to the next level. It needed articulation for the eyes, the mouth, the forehead, the body. It had to eat and drink and smoke. <laughs> they had to use his arms. They originally thought maybe there could be a way he could leave his pedestal and move around. They didn't know. And so Freeborn Shop was also tasked with creating the Rancor arm that was going to pick up Luke. And they had to make about 34 Ewoks. While Phil Tippett, back in California, did all the monster shop stuff at ILM. Which is just crazy. I mean, just imagine, like, you've got about a little over six months to come up with 34 Ewoks in the biggest, craziest puppet ever made. Yeah, no pressure. So as time goes on, Jabba's due date uh, was pushed back to February. Uh, They figured out they would need Jabba for two weeks of filming. But Stuart Freeborn was not making much progress as he was still kind of working on the Dark Crystal. As they really get started closer to filming of Return of the Jedi, there was a big, big question if Jabba would actually be ready. Because I don't think anyone was ready for the incredible amounts of foam latex skin that had to be made and all had to be cooked in giant ovens. And they had to basically make sure that Jabba would fit in the sets that were being built. He was made with over four tons of clay over this massive wooden skeleton. And meanwhile, Freeborn had his hands full, too, because everything possible is going wrong with the Ewok suits. (laughs) Yeah. So January 82, filming starts on Return of the Jedi, and Jabba is not done. January 25th, 1982, is the first day of filming in Jabba's Palace. The last layer of paint on Jabba was just painted on about five, six days before the first day of filming. They had very, very little time to rehearse with all the puppeteers that were in this 18-foot-long puppet. Right, because weren't there four people inside the suit plus two guys on radio control? (laughs) <laughs> so let's give a shout out to each each person inside the Jabba suit. You had Dave Barclay, who was Jabba's right arm and his mouth. I operate Jabba's right arm and the jaw of his mouth. And I do the, the voice at the moment to uh, make the lip sync. And uh, between Toby and myself, we do the body movements, the rocking of the, of the whole figure. And did... The incredible Jabba dialogue while on set, which never forget. Cue stiff dogs. You will bring Captain Solo and the Wookiee to me. Your mind powers will not work on me, boy. I am not affected by your human thought patterns. I was killing your kind back when it meant something to be a Jedi. You had Toby Philpot, who was Jabba's left arm and the head. Yeah, well, I'm, the, I'm the silent brain hemisphere. I do the left hand and the tongue. And uh, 
that goes in here, and my right hand is free inside the head and uh, basically works this head control, tipping it left and right, front and back and up and down. I have one other control that can swivel the head, revolve it. And um, for certain shots, I have things like the tongue here, where my hand goes. I have a couple of cable controls that do snarls around the mouth. Using my feet and the weight of my body, I, I share with David the job of actually moving the body about. You had the incredible Mike Edmonds in the tail. Backwards and forwards. The way I move it depends on the mood he's in at the time. If he's in a, a, a bit of an irritable mood, I just do the little flips like you'd bang your fingers if you was losing your temper or impatient. Or if he's really losing his temper, give it a good old thrash on like that, or backwards and forwards, backwards and forwards. And if he's in a lazy mood, you just keep it like that, nice, steady. You had Mike Olson laying underneath everyone, controlling Jabba's stomach. These uh, hand controls here, these two, operate the twitches around the corners of the mouth, middle of the mouth, lower jaw, and also the nostrils. And my feet work the bellows, which in turn works the respiratory system of the beast, the lungs. And you had Richard Padbury, who was part of Stuart Freeborn's crew, who was the famous person providing the smoke. The smoke from this cigar is for Jabba. When he smokes his pipe, I blow it up the tube and it trickles out of the corner of his mouth. If I was drinking port, it would be a perfect job. And then you had the people offstage controlling Jabba's eyes, which were on radio control. So all these people had to be doing everything in sync with each other, which is just crazy. They didn't have a lot of rehearsal time. They were in there from 8.30 a.m. to 6 p.m. They would take the occasional tea breaks and lunch break. And here you have Richard Marquand, just completely over his head. He had never done anything like this before, and here he's giving direction to a giant 18-foot-long puppet filled with five British guys who can barely hear him. And I, a big concern on the set, and Marquand talks about this, was what if there was a fire? Oh, uh, you can't think about that stuff. You know, we had a great crew, for instance, working Java. And they were nervous of the fact that Java was a potential fire hazard. The whole set was. I mean, there's just uh, nylon and, and, I don't know, rubber and God knows what, latex and everything everywhere. And it's a huge fire hazard. And that's all made of wood to set. And, okay, you've got firemen standing by every day you're shooting, but <laughs> they don't stand much chance of getting out of that. And they were worried about that, but were saying, oh, no, 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 it's, it's quite okay, it's quite okay, you know, we understand, and, uh, and, and uh, I'm, I'm saying, and, and uh, the production department is saying, no, no, just hang on a second, we will find out what the problems are, we will find out how quickly you can get out of there in the event of some accident. Um, so that you feel safe. And that is precisely the same thing as if you're fighting a war, telling your soldiers so that they know that if they are wounded, this is the way that you're going to get them back to the field hospital. And it's precisely the same thing, and it's well known in war with soldiers that morale is much higher if they know that a helicopter is going to come in and lift them out. Yeah, especially it's bad enough you have five guys crammed into a puppet, but there's also a lit cigar in there. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> too, right? That's what he's thinking about. Well, and there's like, you know, the little fires going off, little squibs going off and all that stuff with like Luke when he pulls out his blaster and stuff. And it was crazy. It's insane to think it, that they pulled off something that crazy, that ambitious and barely got it done. You know, it's it's similar to the creation of the Yoda puppet where they were just flying blind and maybe it's not going to look good at all. But somehow, like we were saying in the beginning, Jabba is still like this pop culture icon. And also like the Yoda puppet. It's no wonder George Lucas was just like, I'm not doing this anymore. <laughs> I'm going to do it on a computer and save the heartache. But it's similar to Yoda too. What's neat is it's, it's another completely ridiculous puppet creature that's made believable by interacting with Mark Hamill as well. Because other than Mark Hamill as Luke, the only other interactions with... Jabba or other ridiculous creatures with Chewbacca and Boosh and 3PO and Bib Fortuna. So the one like human person to kind of sell it all is Mark Hamill, who's with like his work with Yoda just really helped bring those 
crazy creatures to life. And I would say also in Jabba's death scene with Carrie Fisher, just when she strangles Jabba, you really believe that she's strangling a giant slug creature and not a rubber puppet made by Stuart Freeborn and his crew. Yeah, that's true. Well, I think she probably had a lot of real rage about the, the costume and everything. So it wasn't hard for her to channel that energy, I'm sure. Well, there's tons of stuff you read, too, that George Lucas just, as outrageous as Jabba was and what a miracle that it worked, he was not happy with it. I mean, in his mind, I think he was already, his mind was already thinking in prequel levels. He wanted Jabba to come sliding out and to, you know, to walk towards the Millennium Falcon or something. That's what he had in his head. And he had said something I read where he was like, well, it just sits there, doesn't do anything, you know, and it's like, well, it's fine by us, but <laughs> we're, we're too content with the present. He's always thinking about the future. What's what's Jabba going to do in the next one? That's what he's always thinking. Well, and much later, Jabba's voice was performed by Larry Ward. It's kind of widely known that the only things that survive from the Jabba puppet are his eyes and like the the skeleton of the tail. I think all that foam latex, all that skin they made, it all disintegrated a long, long time ago, which is kind of sad. Good things are not meant to last. <laughs> Jabba's, he's a luminous being. He's not that crude latex. He is what he is. That's the thing. He doesn't pretend to be anything else. He doesn't feel the need to be charming or anything. He's just an unpretentious, very straightforward guy. Can you munch your lips again, Dave? <laughs> but it's kind of, yeah, so the next time we see Jabba, though, it was his big appearance in 1997, which was, people forget, was a huge, huge deal. I still remember just freaking out seeing a still frame in Insider and like, wait, huh? What? New Jabba? We're going to see that? We're going to see that in the movie screen? It's going to move? I think like in Grand Rapids, I went to Barnes & Noble and had like special edition update with Rick McCallum. I saw the insider issue there. And like, I bought it and brought it back to our apartment. And was like, just look at this. <laughs> look at this. And we just sat there for hours. Well, and before that, I mean, even without having it be real Java, the human Java scene was like a myth and legend thing too. Cause we got, there was like one or two frames in which documentary was it that had the little bit of human Java in it? I think it was in from star Wars to Jedi. The making of a saga, I think, just had a little bit of solo. Come out of there, solo. So we already had that like kicking around in our heads that there's this other scene with Han Solo and Jabba in it, and then now the yeah the idea of finally seeing more Jabba, and then this whole idea that it's, it's computer generated Jabba. What is this? It's magic. He looks so real. <laughs> well, and this is you know it's three years before Jar Jar. What what did we have as a completely CG character in a movie at that point? Yeah, nothing. Well, and it's it's fun to go back and look at the different versions of a special edition Jabba because you look at the original theatrical version now and you're like, that looks horrible. But it's almost like when you go back and, and look at an old video game, like when a new video game comes out that looks drastically better than an older video game, it looks real to you because you've never seen anything better than that. <laughs> I don't think there was – we ever took a second and were like, oh, that Jabba doesn't look right. Did we? I don't remember ever second-guessing that Jabba. I was like, "That's it's, it's Jabba. He's real. As admittedly funky as 97 Jabba looks today, we can never dislike 97 Jabba. He was beautiful at the time. It was a, it was a miracle of science. It was. And and to see him, you would go to the movie and you'd wait for that scene and then that scene would be over and you'd have to wait 2 or 3 hours to see that scene again to even comprehend it. I mean, you look at it now, yeah, and it's a little, you know, it's a little goofy looking. There's something not right about that Java, but Love is blind. You think I had a choice? It's not just a scene about digitally replacing, you know, a placement actor with a CG character. It's also a scene now that actually shows the dynamics between the two of them and their relationship. And it's a very funny little moment. Java, you're a wonderful human being. 
Yeah, so George got Steve Williams at, to do the animation and Joe Letary to CG supervise it. And they basically had to go in and, and make this make this work. Because they had so many problems filming the scene, it sounds like there was no set information or camera information. But luckily, according to George, the whole movie was shot with just 35 millimeter and 50 millimeter lenses. So that, that was it was pretty easy for them to kind of reverse engineer which shot was which. But this was very early in their CG. They were just using more or less off-the-shelf software, which was kind of something that they figured out, John Knoll figured out with the X-Wing scenes, that they were able to just buy animation software and make some of this stuff work as opposed to the, the old days of having to create the, all the software in-house. I love the special editions. <laughs> I love every aspect of it. I love how they were just making it up as they went. It was insane. It's crazy looking Jabba. The ultimate goal is to make it look like Jabba was on the set talking to Harrison Ford, and we just photographed it. This project here was about five shots. It took about a year to do. But we took the picture of some of the stuff we found. Um, we used some of the off-the-shelf software to build a three-dimensional wireframe mesh. This is kind of equated with taking a canoe without a canvas and building the rungs of the canoe and then wrapping it with canvas. And then the next process is to actually paint the creature. And uh, with the painting of the creature, it also involves the actual texture of the surface of the character. So yeah, and then going back to Jabba after Return of the Jedi, you kind of would think that they would want to match Return of the Jedi Jabba, but it sounds like he got direction to kind of do a younger, slimmer Jabba. Uh, his quote is, George told him to imagine Jabba under a Jenny Craig program. I want a slimmed down version of Jabba. And he also told him he didn't want any of the any of the slime stuff coming out of his mouth. So for some reason, this was like a younger, healthier, better hygiene Jabba. Which I remember, I remember that being like the people saying like, you'd hear murmurs like, I don't know if Jabba looked right. You know, and you'd be like, well, it's younger. He's younger. And then some people be like, well, not, not that much younger. Younger. We don't know anything about huts, how they age. Well, and that's kind of grown to become part of Jabba's charm. I think that he always looks a little different every time <laughs> you see them. Maybe, you know, maybe they're like chameleons and their colors change based on their mood. The actual motion of Jabba never really existed before. Even in the rubber manifestation in the third one, there was a real sarcasm about him, even though he didn't really move that much. Over time, it became evident that the mass of the character would allow us to make him move like a sea lion. We had to slim it down to convince the audience that it actually had the ability to move. Over a span of how many years, when he makes it to the third one, he gained an enormous amount of weight, you know, from eating some of those greasy little frogs. Because what the, So the next time we see Jabba, he makes his incredible appearance in The Phantom Menace, which was a surprise to everyone. But then also, when Jabba comes out, I remember being like, oh, okay, yeah, that does look more like Jabba. <laughs> yeah, I think they figured Jabba out. But he still doesn't look like Return of the Jedi Jabba. He looks like a better version of Special Edition Jabba because he's younger. I don't know if, if anyone knows of more information on Phantom Menace Jabba. It seems like that's a big mystery because there was so much new cutting-edge CG character work in Phantom Menace that there wasn't a lot of talk that I could find about what they did to do that version of Jabba. Did they take some of special edition Jabba to create Phantom Menace Jabba? And did the Phantom Menace Jabba later become Blu-ray special edition Jabba? Yeah, so I that Jabba f first showed up in 2004 on the DVD. And for some reason I had thought that the it changed Jabba changed again from the DVD to the Blu-ray. But DVD to Blu-ray is the same Jabba. Yeah, I always thought there were three different versions, but I guess it's just the quality jump from DVD to Blu-ray made it seem like they went back and reworked them. But Maybe there's like differences in the color of Jabba from DVD to Blu-ray, or maybe, yeah, like you say, maybe it's just the resolution. I don't know. Listeners out there, you have your homework. Get out your, get out your Star Wars Blu-rays versus the DVD copy. Do you see a difference between DVD to Blu-ray? Let us know. I mean, that was a surprise too. Like, like all the changes that were on the the DVDs. Some of my favorite, the unadvertised special editions. When it's like, oh my god, they changed Jabba again. <laughs> Still can't get enough of Ewoks blinking. So 
keep it coming. So sadly, that was the last we saw Jabba in the prequels. But then by the time we got to Clone Wars, it was just nonstop huts, 24 hours a day, hut mania, Jabba Palooza every episode. Yeah, they knew they had to get people, they had to sell people on this Clone Wars cartoon stuff. And what better way than bring back everybody's favorite sluggy slime crime lord. So we get our first animated Jabba. So we finally get our animated Jabba. In what way, how do you make Jabba even more lovable? You make him a dad and give him a baby. <laughs> Named Stinky. His punky muffin. Rod of the Hut. Oh, the Clone Wars movie. <laughs> so yeah, in addition to Jabba and his son Rada, were introduced to another family member, Jabba's, I guess, brother, Zero the Hut, who ends up being the one that kidnaps Rada because he's trying to take over Jabba's business. That great start to Clone Wars kind of carried into a few seasons where we got more of Zero. We got Zero going to prison. We got the Council of Huts. Where all the crime lord huts get together, we got a hut with a with a monocle. But ultimately, Jabba gets his revenge by hiring Zero's ex girlfriend, Sai Snoodles, to uh, break him out of prison, get Jabba's hidden doc or his secret documents, and uh, then she kills Zero, and Jabba finally gets his revenge. Once you start getting into the nitty gritty of Clone Wars. <laughs> There's so much hut stuff for a while. There's like episodes and episodes and episodes of just huts and crime lord stuff. Again, it's like everything with Jabba. If you sit back and just kind of think about what you're watching, it's so crazy. <laughs> well, we forgot to bring up back with Phantom Menace. In addition to getting Jabba, we got our first other on-screen hut with Gardula kind of creeping around in the background. Phantom Menace blew the doors off of of hutness and we started like this movie's the new hutness <laughs> and we got two huts and then clone wars is yeah just keeping it going so much so that when when force awakens was coming out everyone was convinced we were going to get a job of the hut scene i feel like that was a pretty pretty hot rumor for a while i think it still is i think every with last jedi we thought are we going to get leia talking to huts and now with the rise of skywalker Maybe where are we going to get someone talking to huts? Well, in Mandalorian, he's, you know, he's a bounty hunter. It looks like he's on Tatooine. Huts. Jabba's not alive, but after the Clone Wars movie, there's no more uh, Rada stories. He didn't die. He's still out there somewhere. <laughs> Stinky is still alive. Stinky is now like maybe Jabba's special edition age. So maybe they'll just bring back the Jabba special edition digital character just as is. And that's stinky. It's good enough for me. <laughs> but I don't know. You look at things like Lady Proxima, the things they've been able to do with giant crazy puppets, especially with Neil Scanlon and the care he took in creating Yoda for The Last Jedi. You, you have to imagine Neil Scanlon and his crew being tasked with creating a job a puppet because i would have to assume that they'd be like let's do it as a puppet now i don't know maybe they like huts have been around but they ran into the same problem that the Stuart freeborn ran into back in 1982 that actually creating a job a puppet of that size and scale is really really difficult and really really expensive <laughs> but it's interesting that like we talked about earlier how kind of yoda and jabba's destinies are intertwined where they both started out as very late for filming very hard to make puppets who eventually transitioned to being cg characters kind of pushing the limits of early cg with jabba in the special edition and yoda in attack of the clones and then who now 20 years later are are potentially coming back yoda again back as a puppet and now if we see another hut, yeah, well, he will we be back into puppets? Are puppets the new hutness again, <laughs> or will it be some combination of the two? Yeah, I mean, I could really see like a puppet body with an animated face. If that's easier, I don't know. The time is ripe for Jabba or another hut to make their return with Mandalorian, the Cassian Andor show. Jabba the Hut himself is still alive back in that time. 
we got so close at the end of Solo. You really believed it that for a while there was the talk that they were building a giant uh, Jabba puppet for Solo. At the end of Solo, they're pretty much saying Jabba the Hutt without saying Jabba the Hutt. You know they're talking about Jabba. I don't know. Like I love the whole make Solo 2 happen movement thing. Go, f- Why not? Go for it. And put it on Disney+. Plus. I think that another Solo on Disney Plus would be perfect. And put Jabba in it. Who cares? Yeah, well, just give us the Jabba the Hutt show on Disney Plus, and Han can just cameo in that from time to time. <laughs> That's what people really want. Just a Hutt, a Hutt family drama, all in Huttese. Maybe Claude is, like, we're just getting closer to Jabba with Claude. <laughs> It's true. Maybe Claude was just an excuse to practice making a Jabba puppet, or that's what Rada looks like grown up. He sucked in his arms and his tail so he could be taller. (laughs) I miss my dad. I never knew him. I've had a life of adventure. When they're talking about how everyone's misconstruing uh, the rumor that Ray doesn't find out more about her parents. Claude finds out about his parents and finds out that he's not a nobody. He's actually descended from Jabba the Hutt. <laughs> you have no place in this story. You're nothing, nobody, but not to me. Oh, thank you, sir. <laughs> it means so much to hear that. Mighty kind of you. Sure, I'll join you. Where are we going? <laughs> <laughs> I think the moral of our story is George Lucas had been obsessed with Jabba the Hutt for a very long time. He could never stop think, thinking of him, could never stop putting him in stories, and could never stop obsessing over getting Jabba right. I don't think Jabba or the Hutt's story is over yet. As long as there is Star Wars, there will be Hutt's and or Jabba the Hutt. <laughs> yeah, George Lucas knew what he was doing when he was obsessing over Jabba because he knew as soon as the world got a glimpse of Jabba that we would all be obsessing over him. How many years later? 40 years later? 30? I don't even know how many years. My whole life I've been obsessing over Jabba the Hutt. (laughs) (laughs) And it's been worth it. The Force is back. The Rebels won't tire till they see the last of the Empire. And Kenner's there with Star Wars Return of the Jedi Collection. Next prisoner, Gamorrean Guard. Gladly, Jabba the Hutt. C-3PO, Gamorrean Guard, and Jabba the Hutt place at each soul separately. Mr. Hutt, you've captured my friend. Free him and keep me instead. That's a sorry tale, but this tale make you sorrier. Jabba the Hutt place at another action figures each soul separately from Star Wars Return of the Jedi Collection from Kenner. and creature performer details from a few of these Star Wars movies set in a galaxy far, far away. And you're listening to Blast Points Podcast with Jason and Gabe. May the Force be with you. And these last points, too accurate for sand people... Only Imperial Stormtroopers are so precise. iTunes Reviews. You know the drill. We say it every single week when you're done listening. If you listen on something Apple, head over there to Apple Podcasts, write a little something, and we will read your review on an upcoming show. We've got a handful of reviews, which are all awesome, and hopefully next week we'll be reading some of those for you, but we'll read yours too if you get it in there in time. And make sure you check us out on BlastPointsPodcast.com. Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, and sign up for the Blast Points Facebook group where it's nonstop Blast Points 24 hours a day. Yeah, and if you like the show and you want to help us out, 
feel free to join us on Patreon and become part of the Blast Points Army. You get to help out the show and get some bonus episodes each month. We had an, an episode all about the incredibly strange More American Graffiti a couple weeks ago. <laughs> <laughs> and we're going to have a new commentary on there pretty soon that uh, you're not going to believe. It's the next level. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, thank you to everyone out there already on Patreon. We appreciate it so much. But that about wraps up episode number 183, the Jabba Palooza. I think we've all learned something. I think uh, I think we all rocked out. I think we supported some causes and we heard some good rock and roll. <laughs> Maybe it was the dehydration. Maybe it was something else. We had our flannel shirts on. I don't know. I might have gotten my nose pierced during this episode. I don't even know what happened. It got too hot and we had a we had a hut stroke and passed out. <laughs> so Well, all right, folks. Thank you everyone out there for listening. We'll be back next week with another brand new episode. Bye bye. May the force be with you. Goodbye, old friend. May the force be with you. No, what is it? It's Jabba Desiligic Tour. <laughs> That's why we don't say it. May the force be with all of you.